0: Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. I'm your host, Heather Stark, and with me is special guest, Rachel Graber. Rachel, welcome.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Rachel is the public policy director, or director of public policy, I should say, for the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And we've had other people from the National Coalition on our show before, Rachel, uh, but not you. So welcome, and and thank you for joining us.
1: I'm honored to uh, be part of this podcast today. Okay,
0: great. Um, what we're going to be talking about is guns. We did a show uh, a couple weeks ago um, interviewing someone from the uh, like well, I forget the name of the organization, but it was a a, a gun um, uh, support organization. You know, the, the, they're politically active and they work in the state of Washington as well as nationally. And um, I had a good conversation with this person because my personal views are I you know I'm I i do not panic over guns the way everybody else does. I grew up in the country and we had rifles and guns and we learned how to use them responsibly and I've never shot a living thing, Um, but target practice, I still enjoy once in a while, I'll go down to a shooting range and do some target practice. So I'm not one of these people that thinks guns are evil, that, uh, that guns are evil and horrible and awful. However, they can be used pretty unreasonably and pretty awfully. And one of the places where they seem to be used in the, the worst possible ways are in cases of domestic violence. Rachel, am I wrong there? Am I, am I, am I summing this up correctly?
1: Oh, no, that, I mean, that's absolutely 100% correct. And, and just so you know, um, I, I was born in Wyoming and then lived in upstate New York uh, about a mile from our nearest neighbor and then in Iowa. So, um, you know, I'm not from a, a community um, or a history of people who um, are particularly anti-gun um, either and you know I don't think anybody in the field um, is inherently anti-gun our concern is when firearms are used as a tool of um, a course of control and abuse and, and we know that that, that happens Far, far too frequently, about four and a half million American women alive today have been threatened by a domestic abuser with a firearm, and of those about one million have either been shot or shot at. It's a very, very powerful tool um, of power and coercive control. How many, how many have mm-hmm. been shot or shot? In? Say that again. One million. One million, approximately one million women alive today, American women alive today, have been either shot or shot at an abusive partner with a firearm.
0: Mm. That's mm-hmm. a lot of yeah. shooting, at yeah. That's a lot of shooting. Any, you, know, you know, of course, I'm going to get men's rights groups saying, "Well, women shoot men too," blah blah blah. But I've not looked at statistics on that. But I suspect that women may shoot men, but at a much much lesser rate. Am I grasping at a straw there, yeah. or is that mm-hmm. no?
1: No, that that is true. Um, and there is research to back that up. Um, and actually, so this is maybe a little bit of a, a detour, but since they passed the Violence Against Women Act, um, back in 1994, you've seen the rate of intimate partner homicide against men decreasing faster than the rate of intimate partner homicide against women. And that's because, um, you know, women now have recourse to other avenues that before they they, they didn't have. Um, The justice system has started taking domestic violence more seriously and um, there are consequences if somebody at the justice system actually gets involved, actually arrests perpetrators. um, And so women don't have to resort um, to homicide to protect themselves. Hmm. Well,
0: that's encouraging. I guess <laughs> um, it's a kind of a
1: low-hanging fruit, but yes.
0: Yeah. Hey, we'll take what we can get, right?
1: Um, mm-hmm.
0: You know, I have a friend who always says, you "Just keep your expectations low." <laughs> you know, don't set yourself up for failure or disappointment. Just keep those expectations low. Um, and I suppose there's some merit to that. Um, when we're talking about guns, one of the questions that I asked the person I interviewed before was. Mm-hmm. Certainly, not everybody should have a gun. And it seems to me that if you have a history of domestic violence, you're one of those people who should not be allowed to have a gun. His response to that was that because of mandatory arrest, that the man who is the abuser is arrested, which, you know, I mean, we can, we can debate that again, but the, that the man who is the abuser is arrested, then the police come and take out the guns from the home, and then 72 hours later, that man is released to go back home, and that poor woman is now left without any way to defend herself in her home because the guns have been taken away. What's your response to that?
1: <laughs> I I, I um, am trying to choose my words carefully. Um, it's total balderdash. Um, <laughs> First me there of all, for a <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's polite, right, Balderdash? Um, yes, yes. Uh, first of all, just as, as an aside, um, in general, we are not supportive of the idea of mandatory arrest. Um, what we've seen is that sometimes if you don't have law enforcement who, that's really well trained, um, they go in and just arrest everybody because they can't figure out who the primary aggressor is. So that includes arresting the survivor. Um, so in a general matter, we're, we're not a big fan of mandatory arrest um, anyway. Nor am when,
0: I. I've seen so many situations, and this is anecdotal, I've not seen a study on this, but I've seen so many situations where the abuser sets up the woman to do something, either slap him in the face or oh, do yeah. something, and then boom, she is now the primary aggressor.
1: Domestic abusers are very adept at um, trying to make themselves out to be the victim um, and trying well, yeah. to use the, the system against against victims. Um, mm. But returning to the the original question about um, firearms being removed and then the victim doesn't have isn't able to protect yourself. Um, you know, starting from the very beginning in a situation like that. Victim services needs to be involved. Um, Somebody needs to sit down with a victim and talk about safety planning and talk about, you know, so you do have a situation in which in 72 hours your abuser is going to be released. Um, What do we need to do to keep you safe? So, you know, just to to start out with, the premise that this guy is arrested and then they just leave the victim hanging out there without any – Without any aid or without any assistance, um, that should not be happening. They, they should be getting connected immediately with victim services to do that safety planning. And a lot of um, law enforcement agencies, you know, they're co-located. They have victim service um, providers, you know, in the courthouse, um, attached to attached to the units. Um, and so it's really important that they they start the safety planning early. Um, I'm going to interrupt in you for gener- a second, because I think yes. you're
0: talking primarily about urban and suburban areas. We've done a couple of shows on rural areas, and let's face it, rural areas are more likely to uh, include homes with, with a gun. Mm-hmm. And in rural areas, that ideal level of support is rarely seen.
1: Yeah, no, and, and that is a, a very real concern. Um, like I said, I'm from Iowa, and Wyoming and <laughs> state New York. Um, and, you know, there are places in this country where, you know, you have to drive 300 miles to get to a domestic violence shelter. Um, and yeah. so it, it I mean, it, you know, w- one thing that we're always talking about and urging um, is m- more funding um, so that uh, rural communities you know, have access to these resources and have access to options. Um, and there, there actually is a, a specific grant program um, in the Violence Against Women Act for, for rural communities um, to, to try to address some of these gaps. Um, uh, so, but regardless, there should be some sort of safety planning, um, no matter the size of your community. Um, and, and that's something that we very much would encourage um, any, any community to, to, to start doing. Um, and I'm sure there are resources out there for communities that are, are looking um, to do that. Um, so, you know, as a general matter, I think also we don't encourage victims and survivors If they are not already gun owners, if they're not comfortable with guns, we we do not recommend that they go out and get new ones or get get guns um, (laughs) when they're in in a crisis situation. Um, We know that research actually shows that um, when a woman goes out to purchase a gun um, due to fears of domestic violence, um, she's more likely to actually um, have that gun turned against her. Um, especially if it's someone who does not have a a history of of gun use and, you know, knowing how to shoot a gun, knowing how to shoot a gun in the right direction. Um, There's some wild statistics, I think, from the New York um, Police Department, from NYPD, about their own officers. And, um, you know, their their, their officers miss like 40 percent of the time from a 7 Yard distance or something like that I don't remember the exact statistic, but those are people who train every day to keep up their weapon skills and If you have a survivor who's not familiar with a weapon um, who's in a crisis situation and facing the potential of killing someone that maybe they love or is you know the parent of their child or that they have a strong emotional connection of some sort too um, you know, it, it it doesn't usually turn out so well for the victim um, and the firearm is often used against them. Um, I would also probably say that in cases like that, they're not going to go and take the victim's guns. Um, if someone is arrested for domestic violence, um, if they possess firearms, those may be removed. It depends on the state. It depends on what the state law is, um, you know, a lot of states they don't allow you to take the firearms if somebody hasn't been adjudicated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we right. would encourage that if responding to a domestic violence incident in which firearms were used or firearms are present, we would definitely encourage law enforcement to take those firearms. Um, but that doesn't always happen. Um, well, and but they you they know if them, you take the abuser,
0: you know, yeah, victim
1: can. Yeah, because the victim is not prohibited from having the firearm, right? It's the abuser who's prohibited. And they're not necessarily going to take the victim's firearms if the victim says, I need this for self-protection, right? Because it's yeah, not the right. abuser's possession, it's the victim's possession.
0: Hmm. Okay. So, I, I don't know. I've not seen any studies on that, but I'm going to take your word for it. Um, but I, I think that you're, you're right about the... Um, I mean, it definitely differs from state to state. And it, it definitely depends on the person's skill in using a firearm, whether or not that's a valid reason to, to leave a firearm, I would think. Um, I think that what you're talking about, about victim skill um, and, and ending up having the weapon used against them, I think that's consistent with some reports that I've seen of just general violence, you know, um, a robbery or home invasion or whatever. That oftentimes uh, the weapon is actually used not for protection; it's it's used to kill the people who thought they could protect themselves with the weapon, or shoot yeah, them.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Will,
0: yeah, yeah. So if you're going to do that, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to get a weapon, you better get lots and lots of training with it. Um, I, and I be think, prepared to um, use
1: it. I mean, that's that's the other thing. If you have a weapon, I think people don't. You know, Recognize that um, it's not as easy as just pulling the trigger, right? Mm-hmm. There's so much no. more that goes no, into nothing, it.
0: Nothing is ever easy as it is in the movies. Nothing is ever that easy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And like you, you know, what, out and, the the emotional stuff that that's attached with, you know, this is your 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 spouse or your your child's father or the, somebody, the somebody that you, you know, even if you don't love them right this minute, you, you have loved and you've built a life with, and you are planning where we a future with, and, you know, all of that comes into play when you're holding a weapon at them. I would imagine I've never been in that position, but um, thank God. It's hard enough to, to yes, yeah, it's hard enough to, to, to leave and let go of all of those, those dreams and those connections. And I can't imagine murdering somebody and being able yeah. to surmount those those things, so
1: so well. Basically. And you know, the the other thing is, you know, it, uh, you know, I'm I'm sitting here as a, a white woman of privilege having this conversation, um, but certain communities are impacted in different ways. Um, we all saw Marissa Alexander down in Florida. She fired a warning oh. shot to her, you know, into a wall. I beg your pardon.
0: Is she still in jail?
1: I don't believe I she's, she's still not. in jail. We,
0: we, interviewed her, we interviewed her attorney. She got a forty-year sentence um, for that, didn't she?
1: Yeah, I I I don't. I believe she's no longer in jail, but I would not quote well, me on that. But me. I I think she's a, she does have a felony conviction. Again, I don't I don't I ha, I'm not up on that, so I, I wouldn't ask but me. For, but um, you know, but you know she did what all these people are saying you should do. you know we have our um gun rights activists, um fondly known as gun nuts, and um you know they're saying well the solution <laughs> oh, the subjective, come on <laughs> um, the, the the solution that you know the, but, but saying that the solution is that we need to arm all women, and that is going to fix fix domestic violence, and that's going to be a protective factor, And, um, you know, for some people um, doing exactly what those people are saying and, um, you know, and and using a firearm in that way um, actually puts them in in greater danger, um, puts them, gives them, um, you know, has has legal consequences for them. Um, And so when we're talking about using a firearm, there are so many other societal factors that go into it as well, not just the um, actual shooting of the gun.
0: Yeah. So we're talking about, um, and again, the original question is, you know, oh gosh, if we take guns away from a home where an abuser has been arrested, then we've left the victim defenseless. But what you're saying is even if a gun, if even if that victim does have access to a gun, You've got emotional and societal, and I would imagine a whole bunch of other things that I can't think of right now factors that play into whether or not it will actually
1: be used or used so, by the victim
0: or yeah exactly or used by the victim um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: so uh, i think we've I think we've kind of put some some holes in the, that argument that taking away the guns of an abuser are, is ultimately going to hurt the victim. Um, I don't, I don't buy that, but I think there's merit to having that discussion. When we talked about leaving victims defenseless, you talked about being able to be advised by police officers or uh, getting a, a, um, a um, uh, going Thank to a shelter ma'am. or something like that, mm-hmm. which works in many cases, but not all cases, and certainly not in rural cases. So. I guess I'm going to expand the question to not just guns, but how do victims defend themselves?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and that's a different, it's a, it's a difficult question um, in a lot of cases. You know, there are a variety of, of remedies. Um, and again, not all victims and survivors can access, um, for example, the courts um, for, for a number of reasons. Um, First of all, I, I would um, just give a, a quick shout out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Um, if you are in a situation that um, you know you don't have someone, a, a, a victim advocate, local who can help you, um, the advocates at the National Domestic Violence Hotline will do safety planning. Um, it's not quite you know the same as having somebody there in your community, but it's really, really important. They do really good work. Um, and so if anybody is um listening to this and, and is in need of assistance, um definitely call the hotline. Um, their number is one eight hundred.
0: Okay, one eight hundred. I beg your pardon?
1: Seven nine nine Oh <laughs> okay, <laughs> yes I do. Okay seven nine nine. Uh-huh. Seven two three three. Um, they also have ta- text and chat services. Um, so they do have um, advocates right there to answer your calls. Um, if there is a program um, that they can make a referral to in your area, they'll help you find an, a local advocate. Um, and then they can also do safety planning with, with callers. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, if phone isn't the best way, they also have to have text and chat um, well, and the last time I spoke with them, which was probably
0: about two years ago, they said that actually <laughs> the texting and chatting is almost equal uh, in volume to the, the phone calls anymore.
1: Yeah, you know, people are engaging in different ways now. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's so, so many other forms of technology that weren't around when they were first established in the mid-90s, right? Mm-hmm. Right, um, and exactly. And I think younger people, younger people, um, interact in different ways than, than older people do. So mm-hmm. it's a generational yeah. course, shift as well.
0: Older person. We know that you are interacting in the wrong ways. We know that. No, <laughs> Being an older person,
1: okay? Okay, we well, I'm... Much better than typing into it. I'm Well, I'm an exennial, so I'm technically a millennial, um, but culturally I've a little more, more like a...
0: What is, what an exennial
1: is someone who is technically born in generation, but um, is not um, culturally necessarily as close to millennials as, as they are to Generation X. Mm-hmm. I
0: see.
1: Like I see. Well, that's yeah. good.
0: That, you know, that's, I've learned a new thing here. So anyway, okay, well, like said, you, you know, but I said I you do hope it, That's I, the, the takeaway. <laughs> I'm starting to feel my old, old codger hood right now, so you may as well laugh at it. Um, no. So let's get back to the whole guns thing. When somebody mm-hmm. buys a gun, and, and I think a lot of these laws are national, but there's also state laws, um, mm-hmm. when somebody buys a gun, are they, they're required to give information. There's usually a criminal check or always a criminal check, I guess.
1: But do they... So, and that, the that's actually, that's actually only okay. um, in states that require background checks for all gun sales. So, um, there are a number of states where you can buy a firearm that's not from a federally licensed dealer, um, and okay. there is no background check for those sales and transfers. Really.
0: I'm shocked. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a federal thing. So, um, um, no. okay. Okay. So it's possible uh, for folks to get a gun without having any kind of background check um, mm-hmm. and just, just have it. So, there, therefore, if there's no background check, we don't know who's getting the weapon. And, and it could be, I mean, there are millions of gun owners in this country. And, you know, there's a handful of nut jobs. So I would be willing to say most gun owners are very responsible you know, they're not criminals, and they're not going to go, uh, you know, hurting hurting people on purpose, and um, they're they're responsible people. Um, but we do have those those ones who are not responsible, and unfortunately, a number of them uh, have domestic violence situations. So when if, if you are in a state where a background check is required, and I really thought that was a national requirement now, so I learned something something else. Um, but do they check they check the criminal history, which would mean mm-hmm. convictions, or does that include arrest?
1: Um, so they uh, they all go through the uh, it's called NICS, um, the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, um, and they uh, have have actually go through uh, look at a number of different records. Um, Okay. they look at not only um, uh, not only convictions but they also um, they query actually a bunch of different databases um, including for example um, there's a protective order database so that's mm. not necessarily a conviction um, but it is a uh, you know it is a, a disqualifying um, prohibitor um, so it checks for that and um, it checks for someone who's a fugitive from justice um so you know they might never have been convicted um because they never showed up for their you know they they fled instead of going to court um or someone who is um indicted for a, for a felony crime but maybe hasn't gone to court yet um you know uh mental health records like i said protective order records um immigration records um so they, they 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 don't just look at um, convictions. They look at, at a bunch of, of different prohibitors. Um, there are nine different prohibitors. Um, there's a, a reason that somebody, um, I guess, a, a status, a person's status mm-hmm. that they can't have a firearm. So if they have a status as someone who's been convicted of a felony or if they have a status as a domestic violence misdemeanor, then they can't have a gun.
0: Okay. All right. Does that Um, make sense? Yes, it does. But you're saying that that, that's ideal, but not every state does that, because some states you can still just get a gun without getting a a background check? A background
1: check. Mm -hmm. So. um, But but you're talking
0: about one one gun owner selling it to another gun owner. You're talking about private. If you go to any kind of gun shop... 'Cause gunshots all have to be licensed at one level or another. So yeah. the the only thing <laughs> yeah. so private, the private sales. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. the only time you yeah. wouldn't have the background check is if it's Joe selling it to Bob.
1: Um, yeah, or Joe selling it to Bob online. Um, or um, you know, Joe selling it to Bob's cousin's sister or uh, maybe at a gun show. Um, so those are non-federally licensed dealers. And in, in a number of states, um, those still have to go through background checks. So they will go to a licensed dealer or to a law enforcement um, office, and the dealer, the law enforcement official, would run that background check for them before they make the firearm transfer. Um, so there are, you know, there are some states where you, I mean, every state you, you can have a private sale like that, um, but in some states there is a process. Um, for, for the, the um, potential purchaser to still undergo a background check.
0: Okay. All right. So, getting the the when, when we do do a background check, we've got the protective orders status, we've got the um, um, we, we've got several things that would presumably and hopefully weed out domestic violence abusers if One would they hope. have a record. Mm-hmm.
1: If they have a record. record. And if if the record has been submitted to the background check system. We know that that's not always happening. Um, There's actually a a new law last year called the Fix Nix Act um, that that was aimed at improving the submission of records, uh, specifically domestic violence records, to the background check system. Um, And and we've seen some improvement there um, since it was passed. Wow. You gave
0: some statistics when we started talking about four and a half million women have been threatened um, uh, Mm -hmm. with the use of a firearm. One million that are alive today were actually shot um, uh, with a a firearm.
1: What about the Mm -hmm. children in these cases? Um, So I don't actually have any specific statistics um, on children, but we, of course, all do know that um, children are, are, very frequently p- present in domestic violence situations. And and often, you know, I was, I was just talking to a, a colleague of mine today, um, you know, uh, when I was a, <laughs> back in my, my former life when I was a school counselor, and this was in a rural community, um, right across the street from the school, um, there was a shooting and a man killed his wife, killed their infant child, killed the dog and shot himself and and the kids all had to move their cars out of the high school parking lot um, so that the uh, helicopter, the air care could land to take the um, offender away. He um, died in in transit. But, you know, domestic abusers don't, you know, they, 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 they know every single way to abuse and, you know that's very frequently through the children because you know mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, when 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 people say i would lay, lay down my life for my children that's not an exaggeration you know abusers know how best to hurt their victims and targeting the children is is very often oh, yeah. um that way mm-hmm. so
0: well and i think there. I, I i may be wrong but it seems to me over the last few years um, there's documented. In, there's there's a dramatic increase in familicides. Am I making that up? Or and usually there's a gun involved. Yeah. You know, so there, it's actually people, guys kill people with a you know with a with a knife or something. They they use guns.
1: Yeah. So it was actually a, a fairly recent study. I think it was sometime this year, um, in 2019, um, that found that. The rate of intimate partner homicides is decreasing, but Mm -hmm. the proportion of those intimate partner homicides that are committed with firearms are increasing. So although you're seeing fewer intimate partner homicides overall, you're seeing more intimate partner homicides committed with guns.
0: A higher percentage of those. The, the 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 homicides are being are a little less, but there's a higher percentage of those that are used with guns. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Guns. Okay. Um, and, yeah. and how are the others done? I mean, what what other methodologies do they these abusers creatively employ to wipe out their their spouses and their families?
1: Um, I mean, uh, th- there are these other weapons. Um, strangulation is not uncommon.
0: Ah, yeah.
1: No, um, yeah, that's a big. I mean knives, baseball bats. I spent um, Friday looking at at, at lethality reports from Iowa. And let me tell you, I mean, it's really a number of creative ways that people Mm -hmm. um, use to kill the people that they claim to love. um, It's it's really disturbing. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I
0: don't, well, you know, that's a whole different show, but I don't think they do love. I think they, they like the idea of having somebody to control, and that's what they love, not the individual, you know? Um, but that's just my editorial comment. Just ignore me. Um, oh, no, I, but, that's why I okay. said clean to love. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay. Um, let's go back and talk about now, we, we've kind of really talked about the extent of the problem. When we're talking guns, we have already established that the majority of gun owners in this country are very responsible. They're not going around murdering people. They're not doing anything. We've already established that nut jobs shouldn't have and abusers shouldn't have guns. Mm-hmm. Where do we cross the line? It's like with all of our, uh, with everything. You know, I mean, uh, you know, they used to say my my right to swing my fist ends at your nose. You know, there are always restrictions on our freedoms, whether we like it or not. Gun control, um, anti-gun control people are saying there's too many restrictions on guns now, too many. And it's not helping because you can put all the restrictions you want on things and people are still going to find a way, you know, to, to do bad things. And quite frankly, I agree with that. But there has to be a point at which we say these are reasonable controls that we could impose. Have we reached that point now or or not, when we're talking domestic violence only?
1: I mean, I, we still have a long way to go. Um, I, I don't know how much everybody um, listening to the show knows about federal domestic violence and firearms laws, but people convicted of um, intimate partner violence, uh, misdemeanor crimes of, of, of domestic violence, um, and people who are subject to final restraining orders, um, are prohibited from having firearms, but that's only if they're currently or formally married, um, live, live or lived together or share a child in common, right? So that's leaving out this huge broad swath of intimate partners who are dating, um, but have not lived together, not married, and they don't have children. And we know that that is actually, um, You know, dating partners uh, comprise most of intimate partner um, uh, calls to to law enforcement about 80% of calls to law enforcement are about dating violence, not about not about um, spousal violence, right. Um, We also know that um, just as a general matter, um, dating violence is more prevalent than domestic violence. And we, we also know the demographics are changing. So, as people get married later, they have kids later, they move in together later, um, it's just going to, that, that swath of people who are not protected by federal law is just going to increase. Um, and we know that dating violence is just as dangerous as violence in which the uh, victim and the perpetrator are married. So, it, it's, it's really just an outdated um, law that when, when they first passed this law, um, they weren't really thinking about dating violence um, because it was it was it was just new, and it took until 20, 2005 for dating violence to actually be um, considered a, a federal crime, interstate dating violence. Um, and so it, it's, really we, <laughs> know, right? um, it's really important that we, I know, right? It's really yeah. important that we update the law to protect um, victims and survivors of dating violence. We also know that you know. All these laws are really important, and they make you know they keep domestic abusers from getting firearms. Um, but we need to do a better job of enforcing them. We need to do a better job of making sure that if the abuser already has firearms, um, that those are uh, those are recovered. Um, you know that that the abuser does not have access to those while they're prohibited from having firearms. We need to make sure that everyone for every firearm transfer. Goes through a background check. Um, you know, this includes transfers between, you know, your uncle and, and your cousin, um, because we know that that's a, a very common way that people get firearms. They get them from family members. Um, you know, we need to make sure that all the background check, you know, all the records are being uploaded to the background check system. So that when law enforcement does run a background check to um, make sure that someone isn't prohibited from having a gun, um, that you know the records are actually there and reflect um, the person's status um, as a prohibited um, possessor or prohibited purchaser. Mm-hmm. So you know we've there are a lot of really good things going on. Um, a lot of states have really strong laws. A lot of jurisdictions are doing you know really good enforcement work. Um, but we still have a really long way to go. When you mentioned the uh,
0: NICS, um, uh, the Mm -hmm. the nine different factors that they screen for, you mentioned mental illness. That kind of caught my uh, mental health checks. That kind of caught my attention because I remember, uh, you know, when, First of all, mental health issues were shameful. Um, I also remember a few famous incidents where somebody who just got depressed and took some depressants, antidepressants for a while, um, was prohibited from running for political office or whatever. Um, when they, when you say they do the, uh, they check mental health. What, how can you be more specific on that? I mean, do they just check whether you've ever seen a psychologist or a psychiatrist, or is, are we talking? You know, schizophrenics, or you know, how and how do they how do they do that in that check?
1: Yeah. So, and and I I will tell you that this isn't necessarily my area of expertise, um, but it, it's um, someone who has been, I believe, voluntarily committed um, to inpatient ah. um, psychiatric um, treatment, although. Uh, or as someone who is adjudicated a mental defective or involuntarily committed to a mental institution. Um,
0: okay, so you have to have a legal a legal basis there.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it it can't be just someone is uh, you know <laughs> you know I have low level depression I'm uh you know I'm seeing a psychiatrist for medication you know that's not going to um have you lose mm-hmm. your your firearms rights and, and there are also um when someone has um lost their fire, firearms rights due to um mental health um issues there is a also a process for them to have their rights restored um but again that, that, that's not really my my area of expertise yeah.
0: Sure, that, that's okay, and I don't mean to put you on the spot. The, the, these questions just come to my mind, okay? Um, oh no, I get it. And you happen to be, <laughs> happen to be the one that that I'm talking to here, so you get the you get the question. Um, what have we missed something to talk about when we're talking about guns and domestic violence? Have have, have I missed an area that we need to discuss?
1: Um, I, I think it's a <laughs> um, it's, it's a very complex issue. Um, I, there are some other things that um, might be interesting to explore that I wouldn't necessarily be the best person to talk to about um, for example, um, you know jurisdictional issues, um, things like that. I, I think that one additional thing that that might be of interest is to talk about um, not just enforcement by local um, law enforcement, but also talking about um, how the local government and state government and federal government can work together um, to hold abusers accountable and to make sure that prohibited domestic abusers don't have firearms. Um, you know, one of the things that we've been talking a lot about um, you know, in the context of the Violence Against Women Act is how do we make sure that law enforcement has tools and resources um, to to enforce current, current law? Um, and if we're talking mm-hmm. about current state law, that means, you know, how do we make sure that they get funding um, to implement policies and protocols to make sure that abusers um, surrender their guns when they're prohibited, make sure that there is somewhere to store the guns, and then if the person is no longer prohibited, make sure they get their guns back. You know, so that's one of the things that we're looking at is how to um, empower local law enforcement to to do more of that enforcement um, from their perspective, but we're also talking about how can the federal and state and local governments work together um, to make sure that the most dangerous abusers don't have access to firearms. So um, there's actually a recently announced um, task force at the De- uh, Department of Justice um, that's sort of looking at how, how to improve coordination between federal um, or, or, or to improve uh, enforcement of federal firearms laws. So um, as, as you know, uh, federal, federal law enforcement enforces federal laws, state law enforcement enforces state laws. Um, you know, there are some states that don't prohibit domestic abuses from having guns. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, in, in those cases, we would need the federal government to come in and prosecute um, those abusers who have guns, um, contrary to federal law. Um, or there are some situations oh, in which maybe, did I get pardon?
0: Oh, keep going. I didn't, I was going to ask a question, but keep going.
1: Okay. Um, you know, or there are cases in which maybe you're in rural Iowa and um, you have an abuser who's stockpiling, you know, 500 weapons and, um, you know, local law enforcement, they don't have the resources to safely um, engage with that person. You know, they need help from the ATF to, um, you know, to, to arrest the person and, and to deal with, with that arsenal. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, they need to, to have access to those, to those federal resources. You know, so that's something else that we've been talking a lot about is how do we make sure that all the different types of governments work best together to disarm prohibited mm-hmm. abusers.
0: Yeah. If an abuser, and because I'm, I'm asking this question because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get feedback on this, if someone okay. is falsely accused of domestic violence, and his weapons are confiscated.
1: How common is mm-hmm. that?
0: And what is that person's recourse?
1: Okay. Again,
0: so I mean, um, on the scene just generally. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So first of all, um, it doesn't, you don't lose your guns if you're accused of something. Um, you have to have been convicted, right? Um, or if it's a felony, indicted. Um, so a court will already have, Considered the case, um, the offender would have had a right to a jury trial or waived their right to a jury trial. The offender would have had counsel or waived their right to counsel, um, and the so the you know the person would have con- been convicted, or similarly, if it's a protective order, um, the, you know it, it, a court would have been involved been involved in every step of the way. So these are only adjudicated abusers. Um, okay. And then as, as far as um, the federal law goes, at least, um, the federal law stipulates that if someone um, is pardoned or has the offense um, expunged from their records, um, that they're no longer prohibited from having a firearm. And that's very, very common if someone doesn't reoffend. If it's a misdemeanor crime, the person you know, does their, their jail time, their probation, pays their fines, et cetera, um, and doesn't re-offend and is a model citizen, um, they will just expunge that from their record. So mm-hmm. this, you know, if if they misbehave <laughs> and they break the law again, um, you know, that's a, that's a different story. But for people who are not repeat offenders, um, that's often a possibility. Okay, all right, thank you. Um, Mm-hmm.
0: I wanted to ask you uh, in in our, our time remaining. I'm looking at the clock, going, whoa, this went fast. Um, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the things that the NCADV are doing um, on gun control? What are what are you doing at the national level um, uh, about these gun issues? What what are you involved in? What legislation are you lobbying for? What are you guys doing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so before I, I go to the specifics of um, of of uh kind of what we're working on here in Washington DC um, I would recommend people turn their attention to um website called disarmdv.org dv being domestic violence disarmdv.org um, and that's a wonderful project between um NCDB and the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence and um, the Alliance for Gun Responsibility Foundation and also Prosecutors Against Gun Violence that has information um, about every single state and the District of Columbia about their laws related to domestic violence, firearms, and protective orders. Um, So there's a section for lawyers um, and, and lawmakers and people who are kind of interested in the legalese part There's a section for victims and survivors who are looking for protection about how how to get protective orders and what a protective order can do for them um, related to the intersection between domestic violence and firearms. And then there's also a section uh, with statistics. Um, So that information is available there for every single state. So I recommend people take a look at it if they have a little time. Um, Here at the federal level, we've mostly mostly been focusing on reauthorizing the Violence Against Women Act. We had a wonderful bill, H.R. 1585, that passed the House um, in early April, and we are working with the Senate right now to develop a bill, um, a companion bill. It won't be exactly the same, but we're hoping it will be pretty close, Um, and that includes um, some some of the changes that we've talked about today. So that includes prohibiting dating abusers, adjudicated dating abusers from having firearms that includes prohibiting adjudicated stalkers from having firearms, um, respondents to ex parte orders from having firearms. Um, also, things like um, providing more resources for uh, jurisdictions to develop and implement policies and protocols um, for the recovery, storage, and then return of firearms. Um, and, you know, in accordance with court order. Um, talking about. Um, Requiring notification of local law enforcement when an abuser fails background checks, you know, tries to Mm. purchase a firearm illegally, um, and then also, again, kind of improving the um, cooperation between federal and um, state and local law enforcement, um, you know, doing cross-deputizing of um, local law enforcement and ATS, um, and then cross-deputizing local prosecutors as special assistant U.S. attorneys. So that's what we're working on.
0: So they can can work together on a particular case.
1: Yeah. So they can, you know, and and it just depends on the situation. Sometimes what that means is just there's somebody with hands on the ground with local knowledge to help begin an investigation. Um, Sometimes that means Mm -hmm. prosecuting someone under a federal statute, and you know, instead of under state law. Um, You know, what it means for every jurisdiction is, is is a little bit different. Um, based on on their needs. Okay. Okay. Very good. Well, it sounds like you're busy. How did you
0: get into this? How did, how did, how did you make this your career?
1: Um, well, I wanted to save the world. I didn't have any lofty goals or anything, uh, just being the, the world's savior. Um, <laughs> when I say it like that, it sounds pretty self-aggrandizing. Um, no, no, no. I know exactly what you mean, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, this is such a, a big part of, um, you know, the pain and trauma that so many people feel, and, um, you know, mm-hmm. starting, yeah, saving the world time. It starts there, right?
0: Well, well, isn't this, in a way, saving the world, <laughs> one person at a time, or one situation at a time,
1: I, you know? Yeah, and and that's That's (laughs) why I love doing public policy because, you know, I can save the world um, many people at a time, right? Mm -hmm. If we can Mm -hmm. succeed in disarming domestic abusers, um, that's not just saving one person. That's saving, you know, thousands of women and their children every year. Okay. The argument is always
0: made that if you take away the guns, they're still going to find a way to kill. And, you know, I think we can kind of put that to bed. Yes, absolutely, they will, if they're bound and determined. But the problem with guns is that it makes it so easy and so quick. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, it's not going to eliminate uh, familicide or domestic violence deaths. It's not going to, even if you can manage to keep guns away from every single abuser or potential abuser, but it will help minimize it. And yeah, that's, you know, that's better than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. Um, one of the things that we had talked about um, as we got, went along here is, um, you know, the, the, the incident of women with guns. Again, mm-hmm. anecdotally here, because I haven't taken the time to look at the research, but perhaps you have. When women in a domestic violence situation, boom, period, forget who's the perpetrator, who's not the perpetrator, when women... Mm-hmm. Are involved in domestic violence uh, situations, and they shoot. Are they treated worse than when it's a man who does the shooting by the legal system
1: honestly i have I, I I have no idea I'm afraid I can't help you with that one that's a study that needs to be done
0: i I think so yeah. <laughs> Because, again, anecdotally, I think that they are. You mentioned the woman in Florida. I mean, you know, it it just – it seems to me that on the rare occasions that a woman actually does the shooting, she is treated pretty badly comparatively. Uh, And, again, I'm going to get the, you know, the emails that, no, 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 it's the poor man. And, yeah, there there are a lot of poor men. But I I just seem to think – I think it's a study that needs to be done. So you guys up there in Washington, you can (laughs) – you can design the next study. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, have of, I, I have a whole list of. I have a whole list of
1: studies I would love to see, so we'll, we'll put that on on the list.
0: Okay, add that one at the bottom, and when we finish the others, then we can go out. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs>
0: if a woman finds herself in a situation where her abuser has firearms, it's a Tough situation. Very rarely does a woman find herself in a domestic violence situation. I, I, you always hear, when I was young, I said this too, I, you, know, you always hear young women say, if, oh, if a man ever treated me badly, I'd be out of there. Or if a man ever hit me, I'd be out of there. So much easier said than done no, when you're yeah. living in it. And so you have women who perhaps are stuck, and in many ways they are stuck mm-hmm. into these situations and yet they, ha- they know their abuser has a gun. Perhaps they've been threatened with a gun. What do they do? I mean, what if they can't just pop into law enforcement? What if they're not ready to divorce? What if they don't have the funding to just leave the guy, uh, which is a huge issue for, you know, the people who very cavalierly say, well, why does she stay? Well, there's a million reasons why she's staying. Um, but if she finds herself in that situation, what should she best do at that point?
1: you know that that's such a really <laughs> that's a, a good good question and a really hard question as well because um everyone's situation is, is different and you know the only person who's an expert in her own situation is that survivor um i think we we generally would encourage that person to call um the domestic national domestic violence hotline or to call a local program um, to do safety planning with them um, and, and to get, get that help, um, you know. And, and, and for some people, maybe what they need to do right then and there is, is call law enforcement, but for people who, who can't do that or for people who, you know, sometimes that puts somebody at greater risk because um, it causes escalation. Um, so I think the yeah. most important thing is is to make sure that the survivor um gets help um, but also that um, um, and and try to prioritize the safety needs of the survivor, which, you know, that might not be the same as the priority for law enforcement, you know? Um, Yep. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So, but I think your point is good. Um, calling the domestic violence hotline or texting them or whatever's safest for you. It's mm-hmm. a wonderful resource. And, you know, you, you call them and they're not going to say, Oh, well, you get yourself out of there right this minute, Missy, you know, don't <laughs> you stay there. Um, they, no, they're, they're not going to say they're, that. <laughs> no, they they hear, they hear what you're saying. They understand what you're facing. Um, mm-hmm. And that number again was one eight hundred seven nine nine seven two three three. 799 7233 800-799-7233, and it, it, it's a wonderful resource, and you can call them repeatedly if you're in a bad place and you just need to talk, And they, because I think for many women who are in this situation, ta- opening up a dialogue with somebody who gets it is more helpful. It may still take you a while to figure out a way to get out of that situation or to feel that you're ready to get out of that situation, but if you don't talk at all about it with somebody who gets it, you're never going to get out of that situation. Um, yeah, so and, and you don't something.
1: need to wait. You don't need to wait until you're in a crisis situation, right? It's, it's if you are concerned about some behaviors you're seeing, you're not sure if it's domestic violence, you're not sure what's happening. You know, give them a call. They'll talk you through that. They'll help you with that. Um, there's also um, they provide services um, in more than 200 languages. Um, they provide services for people who are deaf and hard of hearing. Um, and there's also a culturally specific um, hotline for American Indians and Alaska natives. So there right. are right. so many options out there.
0: Absolutely. And you're so even, you know, I mean, my particular thing, which it sounds like you're, you understand, uh, rural women, you know, I, oftentimes mm-hmm. when we're talking domestic violence and resources, The assumption is that you're living in some sort of an urban area where you can get these services, blah, blah, blah. There are millions of women who do not live in those areas, and resources are few and far between. You know, a long, long car drive, as you mentioned, two- or three-hour car drive to get to a shelter. You know, having the domestic violence hotline is a wonderful resource for these folks because you're not alone. You know, it's a voice at the other end of the line or a text at the other end, and, and you Understand that you're not alone, and these folks know how things work. They are familiar with, you know, with the trajectory of domestic violence. Um, They're just a wonderful resource. So I can't say enough good things about the Domestic Violence Hotline. Um, And, again, 1-800-799-7233. So use that. And in our couple of minutes that we have left, are there other resources that you can think of if guns are particularly an issue with a domestic violence situation where a woman should go? You already mentioned calling local police. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it might put her at more risk. Oftentimes, I hear of women calling their families to come and get them, and sometimes that's kind of disastrous. Is that still a good thing to do, or you know, I mean, what what should you do if you find yourself in imminent danger?
1: Um, so I, I will tell you that I am. Not a victim advocate, um, you know, but i it it just it's it's so situation dependent if okay what a survivor needs is to call her family, then that's what she should do. Um, mm-hmm. If a survivor feels safer calling law enforcement, that's what she should do, um, but I don't know that mm-hmm. there are any just really hard and fast rules for everybody. You're right, it's
0: different for everyone. And that was a tough question for me to ask. Rachel, I've had a good time talking with you, despite the miserable topic. <laughs> it's uh, it's been, been nice talking with you, and it's been nice uh, hearing from you and learning what the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence is doing in this issue. And um, I, I've, I've just enjoyed it. Any final thoughts that you want to leave us with before we wrap up
1: the show? Um, yeah, if you have not called your senators and asked them to support a VAWA reauthorization that is substantially similar to HR 1585, the Violence Against Women Reauthorization Act of 2019, there's still time. <laughs> Write an op-ed. Um, just you know, keep it on keep it keep it on the top of your senators' minds. Those oh, are my absolutely. parting words. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> and it's shameful every time i mean every time vawa comes up for renewal there's always this thing this delay this whatever it's shameful so i, I agree you know vawa's been around since when what 94 somewhere in there mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you know yeah and it's a good it's a good law it's saved many many women and families um there's no reason they should be hemming and hawing over its renewal so contact yeah. your political entities and uh, make sure they know you support VAWA so okay mm-hmm. Rachel yeah,
1: but not but not year? but not any not any VAWA HR 1585. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <R>. 1585 okay HR
0: 1585 <laughs> yeah. okay Rachel thank you so much it's been a pleasure to have you on the show please come on again and keep us up to date on what the DOJ is doing with that task force and up the HR 1585 will you
1: I'd be delighted, and thank you so much for for having me and and for focusing on, on such an important topic. Thank you, and thank you for listening
0: to Three Women, Three Ways. Join us again next week.